you have clicked on Behind the Buzz, a Public Fit Theatre Company's occasional podcast scrutinizing the myriad details that make up the production of our season. And this is episode one of season number two. And I should really start off by telling you we've changed up the format a little bit this season. Uh, by the way, I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at APF, and I'm joined by artistic director Emery Pratt. Hi. Hello, and Emery, why would I say the format has changed? Well, it's a little bit... Well, it's not a little bit. It's it's by necessity. Um, when we were um, recording during the pandemic, we couldn't produce any shows. So much of the content was based upon other shows that we had produced in the past. And so now all the content, <laughs> actually, yes, all the content. Yes. So now that we're we're producing, um, we're in the middle of producing Foxfinder right now. We're drawing uh, our material from the current productions that we're we're producing. So we're going to we're going to do a podcast for every show and every reading in this season. So we, we have seven. Yes. All seven. The magic, the magic seven. Magic seven, the three main stage shows and the four stage readings. readings. That's kind of. We're, we're committed to that. Yeah. Well, we did seven last time. Well, seven plus one. We- oh, yeah. Seven plus one. Yes, that's, that's right. We had Lauren Gunderson in for that, for that last one. Yeah. Uh, we're still planning on lining up uh, special guests, uh, including performers, designers. Uh, we're going to try and snag some playwrights as, as well. And this first show today, the first thing we're going to talk about is the play Fox Finder by Don King. Don King's Fox Finder. And this was actually the play that introduced... Las Vegas to a public theater company. This was the the first main stage show that we that we did, and we did it what eight years ago? Seven, seven, eight years ago. Seven years, yeah, it was seven years ago. Seven years ago, and here we are back looking at this this script again. What was that choice about, A.M.? Why did you choose Foxfinder to sort of reintroduce and, and reemerge a public fit? That wasn't the plan, but we were approached during uh, the lockdown by Mark Chinook, who has uh, a space that has a streaming element uh, attached to his his venue. And he had approached us about producing a show in his his venue. So we're like, oh, yes, well, we'll we'll produce Foxfinder. And the reason why we chose Foxfinder was it was a small cast. And also it was the show that uh, was our breakout show. And we thought that that would be interesting for it to be our, our breakout show in a streaming in a streaming way. And also it was very successful. So we knew that um, we had a level of, of control in terms of it, it being a fine production over over a streaming idea or whatever. <laughs> yeah. right. So the, the idea was a small house maybe and then stream it live or recorded out to to an, a different paying audience um we have well that's changed a little bit hasn't it that's not exactly the the approach that we're taking now what how has it evolved what are we doing now uh, the rules of covid keep changing you know every week every month and so we went from doing a streaming production to doing a full-scale production and now we're doing four performances in september with a, a full budget a full set costume lights uh props and hopefully audience yes audience actors Yes. It's only four performances. How many total seats is that for the run of this show? To be exact, 396. 396 over four. You know, it's funny because the first, the original production of Fox Finder, uh, well, the original, the first production of Fox Finder uh, only had six performances, right? Right. With like... 60 seats? 60 seats. So we're kind of, yeah. It's this like is, the same it's thing. It's almost the same thing. Four performances. <laughs> and I kind of like the sort of symmetry of now we've added four performances to the six we did before. A total of 10, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just us. We, we, we in, in putting this together, yeah, Foxfinder was a familiar title. And we knew that it was something that we could. It was a very successful show, too. Um, Ginger Lanier, she won Best Supporting Actress. We won Best Show. Did I did I blow you, your you did, you, written, did I I've, blow your intro? Well, I've written these I've written these <laughs> introductions here, and I have all of these surprise you things didn't in tell there. Me, Joe, I wouldn't have blown it. It's impossible to to to, <laughs> to rewind. No, it's impossible to cage you, Anne Marie. I know I'm very cagey. You are not <laughs> very cagey. You are uncaged. You cannot keep her contained. You are not. Yes, you cannot be contained. Well, you know what? This is a this is a, as fine as any uh, segue into introducing our our two guests uh, today. Let me first by introducing uh, Timothy Cummings. We're joined. We're joined by by. Two performers from Foxfinder. Coincidentally, two performers. Well, not coincidentally. It's actually complete intention. All by design. All by design. Two of the actors who were in the original 
production of, of Foxfinder and who are uh, reprising their roles in this remounted uh, version of Foxfinder. Uh, for, we've got Timothy Cummings and Ginger Lane. Let me start with Timothy Cummings. Timothy Cummings has performed up and down the Las Vegas Strip for over 17 years. He's performed at Caesars Palace, Excalibur, Tropicana, Flamingo, Stratosphere, and the Venetian. If you've ever seen a show at APF, you've almost certainly seen Tim. He's performed for Vegas Theater Company, Majestic Rep, Nevada Conservatory Theater, Asylum Theater. Um, here at APF, Timothy appeared in the original Fox Finder, as I mentioned, as well as, what else? The Summons for the Tinker, When the Rain Stops Falling, The Realistic Joneses, The Elephant Man, August Osage County, and, and Small Mouth Sounds, for which he was awarded Best Supporting Actor by the Vegas Valley Theater Awards. And we're also joined by Ginger Lanier. Ginger has lived in Vegas for nearly 30 years. I think that actually <laughs> qualifies her for native status. She's a local. Yeah, she's a local. We, we, she graduated from UNLV with a degree in acting and was one of those performers who actually didn't run off to New York or Los Angeles. Instead, Ginger stayed here and she works with uh, children at the Las Vegas Library District. She plays the accordion, memorizes Shakespearean sonnets for fun, writes children's books and other cool hipster mom activities. <laughs> you might have seen Ginger in the original Fox Finder, for which, as Anne-Marie has uh, mentioned, <laughs> for which she won the Best Supporting Actress by the Valley Awards. Or you might have seen her in Complete Female Stage Beauty out at CSN or in The Learned Ladies for NCT or in CSN's The Women. <laughs> have you noticed, Ginger, all the XX chromosomes plays you've done? Learned Ladies, oh, yes. Complete Female Stage Beauty, <laughs> The Women. Oh, yes. Coincidence? I think best not. Best, best Supporting Actress. Is this, is this by design? Was this intentional? I'm very femme. Amen. The future is femme. That's right. Represent. Represent. Well, you, you, you guys have both heard uh, AM recount the reasons why Fox Finder. But in order to sort of jump into this with any sort of confidence, we had to get everybody's we had to get everybody on board before we really made the final decision. I'm, Ginger, I'm going to start with you. Do you remember your first reaction to that phone call from Henry saying, hey, we're putting the band back together? Oh, uh, yes. I was so excited. I have spent the last seven years having babies. So, <laughs> and not 13 doing... 13 children? 14 yeah, children? I lost count a while back. So, I don't so know. Yeah, triplets every year. This is... None of those things are true. <laughs> and yet they're all true. No, I, uh, I was very excited. I haven't done theater in a while. So, I took some time off to have babies. And... Um, I, I immediately was like, I want to do this. Yeah, why? Was it just to get away from the kids or was there a, I mean, no, really. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Having three, yes. <laughs> I don't have three. I have three. Okay, so Tim's using this as a shield to get away from his family. But Ginger, what was your original? Um, no, just to, to come back to something that I loved so much before and to revisit it after so long. I mean, seven years and, uh, you know, a lifetime of different things. And, and I just thought it was an amazing opportunity to um, see everybody again and reacquaint myself with the theater and um, just be a part of something that just was, it was, it was so enjoyable before. And it was such a solid production before. And I love working with Anne-Marie so much. And I just, uh, it's, you know, it just was a no-brainer. Do you do you like the play? Yes, I do. Yeah, it, well, I, I'm going to let you actually tell us what the play is about. Um, well, there you know there are people that may not have seen the original production of Foxfinder. If you were to so if you're to bump into somebody in the elevator and they asked you what you're up to lately, so I have to go to rehearsal. I'm doing this this play. It's called Foxfinder, and they ask you what it's about. What do you tell them? Since I work at a library and I work with children, um, my reference point my reference points are usually. YA. So I, I, I use the word dystopian. Yeah. Um, and I do actually say it's kind of a dark comedy slash dystopian thriller and kind of leave it at that. That's pretty evocative. What do you, Tim, if I threw you the same question, what, what is Fox finder about? Uh, I'm going to tell you the story about, uh, my audition for Fox finder the first time. Okay. Seven years ago. And that was, uh, my wife had gone to a reading of uh, Rabbit Hole that APF had done. And Anne-Marie announced that the next day there was going to be auditions for Fox Finder. And so I came to the auditions. I didn't know any of you. And I auditioned and you liked me. You really liked me. And you invited me back. And you said, have you read the play? And I had looked the night before and I could not find it. Uh, and so uh, our, the intrepid stage manager, Brandy Blackman, had sent me a copy. I read it. And then my wife asked me, so what's the play about? 
And I said, it's about a farmer and his wife, and they live in a world where there may or may not be magical foxes. And she said, oh, my God. However, for me, Foxfinder, it's a melodrama about this family that is really trying to come to terms with belief, what the world believes and what they believe with their convictions. And they're, I assume they are in conflict. Incredibly in conflict. Yeah. What, can you tell me a little bit about what the world believes? I mean, that's an interest. You've, you've spiked my curiosity. The world believes that the foxes are our enemies and they are trying to cause the downfall of humanity. And certainly uh, where this play is set in England, they're trying to uh, cause the downfall there. And uh, it seems like, or rather it seems to me like, the, in this world, it has reverted back to uh, farmers uh, providing for the country. Um, it's a very almost hands-on kind of thing. There's not a lot of tech aspects to it. And um, everyone is uh, filled not just with responsibility, but with also a national pride to supply for everyone else. So uh, there's a lot of pressure on the farmers to provide. And the foxes, when they come, when they appear or are meant to appear, when they are yeah. summoned or, or are meant to appear, uh, cause damage of the farm. However, like uh, Ginger's character, Sarah says, you know, nobody can say whether weather's changed. So to me, it's also a play about, you know, it's about climate change as well. And, you know, perhaps some other uh, event that has happened. That has caused these events, caused the world to change this way. You use the phrase magical foxes. Emery, does that, does that sit with you? Um, well, for me, the foxes are a metaphor for fear of other. So whatever your fear is. So let's say you have a fear of the political divide, then that's what the foxes are. If you have a fear of what's happening in Afghanistan, that's what the foxes are. If you have a fear of religion, that's what the foxes are. And so when people come to the play, they insert, that's how they personalize the, the play. They, they insert their fear in, into the story. And, and that's why I think it's a, a super powerful story right now, because we as a country were divided. We as a world were divided um, over medical reasons, political reasons, religious reasons. And, and so that's what, why I think the play is so poignant. What was your, so Tim, what was you, I asked Ginger, what was your initial reaction when Emery and I called and said, Hey, we're putting the band back together. going to do Fox finder again. Are you interested in being involved? What was your initial thought? That was back in March. And it was just like, okay. I was just like, uh, I we had a really good conversation. It was really, and she did use the phrase, I'm getting the band back together. Um, so I was looking forward to, you know, returning to the original cast and seeing everybody that I hadn't seen some, I hadn't seen in a long time. You guys have been away. You guys have been away from the play for seven years. As you mentioned, you've been away from each other in some cases up to, yes. up to five years. Are there, is there new, has the play grown in that, in that time for you? Have, has it, are there new discoveries that you've discovered coming back into the rehearsal process? Ginger, I'll start with you. Do you, do you feel like there's a, um, like it's a new play? Is it a new play? Absolutely. Yeah. I am actually surprised at, how different it feels. I mean, personally, now, I mean, I, I play a character who has children, and at the time I didn't, which I don't think is necessary to understand what it's like to be a parent when you're playing a role. But just as a, you know, happenstance, I do have children now, and I was informed in a different way. Yeah. Um, I realized that there are things that I interpreted before that, just naturally are different. Um, um, just, I don't want to give away too much, but um, a lot of the fear, paranoia, um, protecting family and things like that, that my character is about, that was much stronger. Um, and I understood it. It was a much a clearer trajectory um, and a clearer journey that my character is going on. Yeah, I no, I, I, I can see that. Is that the, well, that can't be the only thing that's changed for you in, in, in seven no. years. No, that's huge. I'm not, I'm not devaluing the idea of squeezing out. What do we decide? Six, seven kids? 13. No, wait. She is the mother of nations. Ginger has two adorable little girls. And I, I don't know why I insist on teasing her with having multitudes of children. What is the collective noun for dragons? Um, a uh, scales, a scale of dragons. A scale of dragons. Let's have a scale. A scale of children. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Tim? Did you did you find anything new in the script coming back and, and looking at it after again after seven years away? I did, because when we first did it, it seemed 
the dystopian part of it seemed very removed from where we were living at that time. And now that dystopian part, in my perspective, feels very immediate. Really? In what way? I uh, Just the disconnect between what is broadcast as the truth and what is the truth. And what people understand to be the truth. We, we are often doing, uh, having debates with people who have a completely different understanding of, of what is true. Not to come down on either side of these arguments, but that, that when there are two truths battling it out, um, what is it that, that allows one truth to win out over another? That's a kind of a theme in the play, isn't it? What, what truth wins out? And I think, is that true, Emery? Is there an idea in the show that we're dealing with two separate perspectives and that uh, both are sort of rooted in a very energetic belief that they are right. Uh, and, and one has to come to the fore. Well, there's a lot of radical thinking in the play in, in terms of um, this belief in, in, in foxes. Uh, and it's expressed um, through one major character. And this one major character gets Timothy's character to buy in. You know, I'm, I just want to stop for a second because we, we keep talking about foxes and we say the foxes and belief in foxes and the idea of the belief in foxes. Mm-hmm. Foxes are real. Foxes are a real thing. Right. So so what is it you, when you keep alluding to this idea of belief in foxes? How is it different in well, the, in, the world in, of this play than in, it is in my in world? In this world, uh, the government that is an unseen character has led the community uh, to believe that foxes are responsible for for climate change, uh, for death of children, for sickness, for um, strange behavior between people. Foxes, in a sense, can be blamed for anything. And and when you get this um, feeling that foxes are responsible for anything, it it creates this very like binary um, feeling in this in, in the play where people get very radicalized and they attach themselves uh, to this uh, this strange notion, and it separates families, much, much like radical thinking separates families in our world today. Uh, and so um, what Don King has done, um, and I don't want to speak for Don King, but what I see in the play is that she expresses extreme thinking with the different characters, like there's a continuum. You have one character who believes very strongly uh, that foxes are the cause of all um, mankind's problems or humanity's problems. And then you have another character who is an underground uh, radical thinker herself and doesn't believe in, in that idea at all. And then you have other people just living their lives uh, who are just trying to survive. And, and I think that's what's happening in the world today. So that's why the, the story is so poignant. But what I f- find interesting and in going back to your original question is that in the previous production, I didn't see the continuum as clearly as I do as now that I've matured as a person. And I was very fixated on William Bloor. He's the, he's the fox finder. He's the one that's spreading all this propaganda and he's, he's from the agency. But what I see now very clearly is Judith, which is the wife of, of Sam, her not really buying in to, to the thinking and really finding her spine, finding her strength as the world around her is, is devolving and melting. And I, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't see that as clearly the first time because Don King being a female playwright, I feel like she inserted her perspective through Judith in the, in the show. Well, I think this is a good, uh, this is a, the perfect moment to say that the original production for all of its obvious directorial failings uh, <laughs> did actually win best production from the Vegas Valley Theater Awards that year. And you were awarded best director for your work on Fox Finder that year. So you must've done something right. I was surrounded by very smart people. <laughs> all of these things that you've told me though, all this, this stuff that we've talked about, doesn't sound very funny. Where's the humor from this play come from? Ginger, you wanna take a stab at that? Um, I think it comes from the characters really believing in their stance um, and us as an audience, understanding that it's it's extreme and um i don't know i just i think it comes from the absurdity and it's also very english right that's where i find a lot of the funny like what 
I burst out laughing in rehearsal inappropriately is <laughs> just the the sort of uptightness of some of the <laughs> some of the dialogue with William Bloor and and all of that. Yeah, the, the the reserved nature of the characters in contrast with this very extreme thinking, the juxtaposition of those two things, I think that's where um, the comedy comes from. And, and the writing's quite good. She's she she crafted a funny story in certain areas. But it's really about the relationship between these these well four people. William Bloor comes in to the family of Judith and Sam. The two of them are, are recently childless. Sarah Fox is a neighbor who lives down the street. She makes up the, the, the fourth character. And those relationships, uh, what is English about that? Can I uh, try to answer that? Please, yeah. So to me, like when I went to London uh, some years back um, to do a play, actually, um, I realized I was just like a, a, a loud, obnoxious North American. And, and you're Canadian, for God's sake. I know. Sorry. Eh? Um, but I was in a city and in a country that was, for lack of a better term, lubricated by civility. And it was such a civil place. Even strangers on the street greeted me civilly. And, uh, you know, ticket guards at the at the uh, tube station or in the airport or whatever. Um we're very incredibly civil. So there is this very proper way of meeting and greeting each other, um, regardless of how we feel about this person. Um, but that is lubricated by that civility that is everywhere, apparent everywhere. And that's what I find, I think maybe is what you're trying to say, is what I find sometimes comic about the play. Um, there is this British uh, stiff upper lip, uh, rigor to them that, and they're dealing with this absurd situation. Well, but they are country folk. I mean, the people that we're dealing with, your character specifically, is very, very much a country, would you call him a country gentleman? No. He's a little rougher than that. No, no. He's a, he's a working class farmer and he's very short on words. That's what, that's one of the things I really like. That's one thing too, I've noticed this time around about Don King's script is uh, her economy of language. Uh, William Bloor gets to speak a lot and very properly and roundly, whereas some of the other characters get to speak very vernacular. Um, and and I have and Sam has very short, short sentences. Uh, yeah, something interesting about William's language, too, which I think has to do with cult thinking is he sounds much like a recording when he's talking. He's reciting something that he's been taught and he believes that it's his own words, but he's really just reciting propaganda. And that's very clearly uh, crafted in the story. How did you pick up on that? Well, I mean, without quoting the script, it just it just doesn't sound anything like the words that he puts together. It doesn't sound like anything that anybody would ever say. Well, and also, he doesn't answer questions fully um, when characters ask him about himself. He uses sort of, you know, pre-written answers that in don't actually answer anything about him. Yeah, it's a way of protecting yourself uh, from actually having to face the truth, right? If you just chime into the recording, then you can use that as a shield. And that's what his character does all the time. And if you're if you're from proper society where everyone's civil, that's enough. No one, no one goes any further than that. If you have an answer that is, you know, I, I answered the question with that statement and then you move on because it's, that's enough. Well, it's not just civil society. He, he carries a certain amount of authority and I'm going to use this word terror. I think there's, there's yeah. a, a certain threat that he brings to bear that, that, plays well into the or against the idea of, of a civil society. I think there's a lot of threat in his character as as well, especially with you, Ginger. Yeah, you have a couple of scenes that are very clearly about power and threat. And um, I think I see his his dark side for lack of a better term. <laughs> yeah. It's the old joke. Hi, I'm, 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 I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Right. Yeah. I, I see the part of him that's not as civil, I think more than maybe the other characters. Right. I think at first, you know, uh, Judith and Sam, the farmers get the carrot mm-hmm. part of it, even though they're being investigated. Whereas yeah. uh, with Sarah, she gets the stick. 
Hey, I'd like to take a quick moment here to let everyone know what's coming up at a public fit. We, we've planned out our 2020-2021 season, and we could not be more excited. We've added a second performance to the readings, a uh, Saturday matinee that will follow our regular 7 o'clock Friday show, uh, continuing our wonderful partnership with the Las Vegas Clark County Library District. So Gloria, a dark, dark comedy by Brendan Jacob Jenkins, will run there on October 22nd and 23rd. Dominique Morisau's dynamic drama Skeleton Crew runs January 28th and 29th, and the heartbreaking Stop Kiss by Diana Sun will run for just one night on, on March 25th. We'll conclude this year's reading season with Will Arbery's incredible, controversial Heroes of the Fourth Turning on June 24th and 25th. Um, and now, as always, admission to the readings is free of charge, but we, you know, we still recommend arriving a bit early just to take advantage of the best seating. We've talked a little bit today about our season opener, uh, Fox Finder, running from September 23rd to the 26th at The Space, but we'll be returning to our main stage at the usual place in the winter with Craig Wright's ridiculously inventive recent tragic events. It runs February 4th through the 20th. Uh, then our final main stage show, Things I Know to be True by Andrew Bovell, opens April 1st and runs through the 25th. You really don't want to miss this this collage of movement and, and, and moments. Uh, it's really going to be an unforgettable theatrical experience. Uh, for more information and specific showtimes or to purchase tickets, please visit us online at apublicfit.org. If there's one thing we've learned in the past couple of years, in these days of forced isolation and, and endemic fear, we really need these shared theatrical experiences, these, these emotional stories, and now more than ever. I hope you'll join us. And thank you so much for your continued support. You said something, Emery, about the truth earlier about recognizing the, the, the truth, but we've talked about sort of two truths living in concert and in, in, in conflict in, in this world. Is this resolved in the play? Do we come to understand a truth? Does one win out? I guess I want to know coming into the show is, is, is there a truth that wins? Well, uh, the play is very circular. Uh, there's that without spoiling the ending and Certain characters come to the truth, but is it a win? I wouldn't necessarily say it's a win, but they do come to to uh, uh, a healthier version of the truth. What they do with the truth is not necessarily um, so healthy. I do wonder if there are any moments uh, from that first show, those first six performances, uh, Tim, that you've tried to recreate. Any moments that you've tried to recreate in this show or... Yes, and thankfully, Anne-Marie has steered me away from them. Yeah. Um, because it was, uh, it was, uh, I don't know if it was just the, I don't want to say it was a breakneck rehearsal process. It was a shortened rehearsal process. The first time. Yes. Yeah, we've been rehearsing this show since June of 2017. The days are long, but the years are short. I know what you mean. <laughs> um, but uh, there were certain choices in that where it was just uh, very gruff and very kind of exterior, at least for me. Uh, in my understanding of it, they were very gruff and very exterior that worked well, but I'm really enjoying delving further into the script and further into the moments with the other actors now, um, to bring, bring a more realized experience. What were the moments that you tried to, to jump right back into and Emery sort of reined you in? Can you, can you think of anything specific? Uh, well, right from the beginning, it was just like, uh, from the beginning, it was just uh, in the first production, it was just kind of like uh, anger, disbelief and, and boorishness, just irresolute boorishness and uh, or resolute boorishness. Sure. Um, and then with this one, it's more trying, uh, obviously trying to have a relationship with, you know, uh, with Judith, with Tina Bryce, who's, who's playing Judith, uh, my wife. And um and seeing what that brings and having that relationship and establishing that relationship on stage. Um, but I, I kind of like it to, for lack of a better, it's like when a clown walks out on stage, you know who they are the minute they walk on stage. 
you see that character. So that's what we're trying to do there. You know this couple. The minute that you see them, the lights come up. You know who they are. What about you, Ginger? Were there moments from the original production that you felt, oh, I want to recreate that that moment. This is this is uh, very familiar. This was appealing to me. I want to try and bring that back out again. I have the benefit of working with someone else for uh, half of my scenes. Oh, that's right. You want to tell that? It's, it's, it's not a big story, but we did have to replace one of the performers. One of the, the performers is not from the original production. Tina Rice has stepped into the role of Judith, and that's who you have your scenes with. That's all. Oh, that's a really interesting point. Yes. Yeah, so it, 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 it sort of automatically creates a different vibe, a different energy for me. So I don't have to work as hard to not repeat myself. Um, you know, both experiences have been great. Um, but it, that, for those scenes, I just can't recreate, even if I wanted to recreate things, I couldn't because there's a different person standing in front of me. And sure, the, the script is the same, but that's it. I mean, everything is different. The approach, the energy, the, the personal relationship with the other actor, like just everything, her physicality, how we relate to each other, even, even just how much taller she is than me. <laughs> like, I, <don't> really <laughs> I love it. It's just so different. <laughs> No, so I, but, but the scene, um, wait, I have two. Yeah. I have one scene with Chris and that, um, is the same actor obviously. And I was a little afraid that I was going to try and repeat myself and it wouldn't make sense because I'm approaching it from a different way because I've lived life and I have different references and the world is a very different place than it was in 2014. Is it strange how much can change in, in seven years? It feels like I'm waking up from some sort of fever dream or so. I don't know. And it's, and it's terrible. <laughs> Even this pandemic, I know we, we've announced this season and we've committed to, you know, a seven show season. And, and I don't know that we're done with the, with the pandemic. We're still living in, in what now has become endemic times. We're going to have to take very clear precautions with our audience, with our performers. You guys have been rehearsing in masks from time to time. And then when everyone was acknowledged to be vaccinated, you take them off as you are comfortable. We still have um, our stage managers wearing masks and, and, and what have you. It's seven years can change everything. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think, I, I think the way we're imagining being done with it is not even what's going to, what it's going to be. So, I mean, we're kind of just in very uncertain times and so much has happened, but yeah. So I mean, to get back to what you were saying about repetition. And well, everything, anyways, um, before you get onto that, I, I, the idea that we are living in very uncertain times, I mean, literally uncertain the CDC guidelines for what a theater can do may change tomorrow. The distance that from actors to, to, to audience members, the distance that, that audience members can have amongst themselves may change next week. And we'll have to redesign everything all over again. Yeah, what yeah. does that do for the, the play? That's sort of that level of uncertainty. And I mean, some people thrive in that sort of chaos. I do not. Um, and I don't know if, if you perhaps, no, I don't really. And I don't know, I don't know if you, if you do, if that's something that's very comfortable for you. I, I don't think I thrive, but I think I've developed the ability to, um, to be more flexible and to pivot and constantly be able to change as I work with the public in my day job and with things are constantly changing there. And I work with children, so it's a very sensitive topic because, you know, they're so vulnerable. And every day, I, I mean, I, I'm just used to every day when I go in going, okay, has anything changed? And then making a plan based around those changes. And I think, you know, um, I read something that Anne-Marie said recently that I thought was really beautiful, and I can't remember it. But... Um, <laughs> But it was great. That's all you need to know. Uh, <laughs> it's you said something about um, in order to put on theater, you have to you have to be able to be foolish. And it was a, it was your post. It was not about being perf perfect. Yes. Right. And willing to to be willing to risk and, and not be, I think, especially for women, we put on the shield of perfectionism and you can't do that in the rehearsal room. You have to be willing to make mistakes and rely on other people. So, yeah. And I think, I think doing this during a pandemic is, is putting another layer on top of that. Like that really resonated with me when I read that, because I thought, 
well, of course, this whole thing is foolish. We're doing a theater in the pandemic. <laughs> like, when I look back on this, what am I going to think about my choices and everything? But I, I really had to just jump in and just be all in and say, well, this is what we're doing. And this is the decision I've made. And do you say, well, I, I just have to say for uh, my, my lawyer here tells me that, that in order to continue, I just have to say that uh, APF has committed to, to taking seriously all CDC guidelines, as well as the guidelines that have been represented by equity houses uh, in New York, Los Angeles, across the country, all theaters that are reopening are adhering to similar guidelines. And we take this stuff very, very seriously. So getting that out of the, the way, I mean, we really, we really do. I don't want to make it sound too casual at all. Do you, all this that we've just talked about, uh, Ginger, Tim too, both of you, I think, do you think that this feeling that this sort of umbrella of whatever is going to translate through this story down to the audience? Is the audience going to feel this in a way that they may not uh, react to a, a really good production of The Odd Couple? It's going to crystallize all that uncertainty for them. Yeah, I mean, it, there's fear, there's paranoia, and those two things right there, it, it, they're so pertinent right now. I mean, the amount of paranoia that I feel from not only myself, but from other people going out, constantly questioning, am I doing the right thing? Should I go here? Should I do this? Should I go to this concert? Should I live my life? And then trying to, to, to find a middle ground where you're still careful, but, and you're still responsible, but then also living life because this still hasn't gone away and it's going on two years. And yeah, I mean, that, that kind of thing is, is palpable. I just didn't even in rehearsal, I feel it. And as an audience member, if I was watching this show, I, I would feel it and I would understand. You know, it's funny. The The original Fox Finder was our first um, fully realized production. But we did after every performance, as we continue to do, um, we buzz and we bring the audience back and we talk about the play and its themes and its its discoveries and, and all of those things. And there are a, a couple of times I can remember very clearly during the original Fox Finder buzz in the question being asked not from us, but from the audience, really, who are the foxes? What, you know, who, who, who does Don King meant uh, to be represented by the, the foxes? And we had just myriad answers for that, that question. And I'm curious if you guys are looking ahead because we're going to buzz after this one too. And I'm wondering if you're looking ahead to the sort of conversations that, that might arise because of the situation of the world right now. And the, the, you know, just, I mean, the love of being back in the theater is almost separate from the idea of living through this, this pandemic. Um, I'm wondering what you're thinking that reaction is going to be, what those discussions might entail. What do you think, Tim? I think that the, uh, if they do identify the foxes, there'll be much more concrete groups as opposed to abstractions, which I felt they were before, where it was like, oh, fear of the other, like Anne-Marie said, or, or you know, fear of a government entity. It's going to be people saying, oh, it's the anti-vaxxers. No, it's the people trying to shove, you know, a, a, a third vaccine down our throat. No, it's, it's Republicans, it's Democrats. I think there's going to be a lot more, I feel, there'll be a lot more identification of groups. That's really interesting. We have increased sort of our, our consuming of... Um, radical ideas both on the left and the right through online interactions of all sorts from Facebook to Instagram to what do the crazy kids do today? TikTok, all of these things, all, all of these things are, are sure. Did that even exist? I guess there was a Facebook seven years ago. There was a Facebook. Of course there was a Facebook. Yeah, there was a Facebook, but it just wasn't, it was full of cats and galaxies and baby goats and, you know, the occasional article and, in that, but it wasn't the way it is now. Is this going to be a fun night at the theater? I mean, you're, these are a lot of deep topics and you're talking about paranoia and political uh, unrest and concern. Are we, are we gearing up for a disaster or is this going to be a fun night in the theater? This is an incredibly engaging story. Um, I, it's hard to look away um, simply. And I don't speak for myself, but I speak for the other three talented people on stage. Um, um, I as sometimes I'm just watching. I'm like, oh, I missed my cue because I was watching. And this is rehearsal because it's so good. And I'm like, ah, no, this is going to be a very engaging night of theater. And it's also beautiful. Uh, it just just the 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 drawings and everything um, with the design. It just mm. for me, I I'm an escapist. 
Okay. And I have a really hard time um, consuming entertainment that is not escapist, that reminds me of the world and headlines and all of that. That's just a personal preference. Sure. But with this show, I think it's a great balance of um, really, really making a really thought provoking, but also um, taking you to another place just visually. And it's it's removed from what our average daily lives are. Um, maybe not for people who live in rural England on a farm, but so many of whom emigrate here to Las Vegas. You'd be surprised. Well, and, I, and I think too, and it's something we haven't really talked about. I think there's a mystery to the play um, that is really interesting. The, 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 just the identity of the Fox and the, the, because we understand what cute little fuzzy red creatures, foxes are, but the way they are presented in the play strikes us as so bizarre that it takes us a little while to get on board with the understanding that these people have well, about these creatures. Well, that's also interesting interesting because we see foxes in a totally different way than people in other countries that actually encounter them on a daily basis. They don't think they're cute and fuzzy. (laughs) They're weird. Well, well, we see foxes on Facebook. So it's, they're Disney foxes. Oh, they're cute. They're kind of, they got bushy tails. No, they are killers and they will slaughter every hen in a hen house. And they have, they make a lot of weird sounds. Yes. They have a very weird scream. But when we went to London two years ago, a fox came across our path and we were like, whoa, fox. It, w- it was like a magical fox. It wasn't like a, a crazy, you know, scavenger dog, you know. So, yeah, I agree with that assessment. You guys are also we're also doing this in a new a new space. We're not at the usual place this time because of, as you mentioned earlier, Emery Mark reaching out, talking about a space that was wired for streaming. So we're, we're at, at the space. We couldn't recreate the set there. We have a new design, a new a new monstrous set over there. What's that done to your staging for the play? I mean, you had you you came in from scratch, I guess. Um, well, the previous time we did the show, we did it over at Cockroach, which is now a Vegas theater company, uh, and they have a, a, a pretty small footprint. Um, so Mark Chinook's The Space um, has a much larger footprint, but it wasn't large enough. And so when I got together with the, the scenic designer, Eric Koger, um, we created a peninsula that extends from the actual um, cabin or um, house that uh, Sam and Judith live in. And that's the established stage at the, at the space. Uh Yes. And the reason why we wanted to do that was we we wanted a bigger, um, uh, a larger footprint, um, more real estate to to create a story, which has created some really interesting and dynamic um, um, physical movement. Um, Also, the look of the set is much different than it was before. The, The previous set was much more realistic. This is much more surreal. The colors are super vibrant. Uh, there's a lot of like hot pinks and fluorescent greens and blues in, in, in the world because we wanted to create a more fantastical expressionistic uh, world, uh, which is is pretty exciting. And um, we have a different lighting designer. We have a different sound designer. We are using Maria's costumes, but um, Haley uh, is adjusting them a, a bit to fit into the concept that we that we currently have. And so it's going to feel like a very different play just because the footprint of the uh, of the play is much different, even for um, Ginger's character. You know, we put her in the house. Her staging is all very abstract and expressionistic. We only have one chair and they use the peninsula and there's which there's no real concrete um uh, actual set um, or house for her her scene. Do you want to describe, you've mentioned the concept a couple of times now, concept of set, concepts of design, concept of the, the costumes having to be adapted into this new concept. Do you want to give voice a little bit to what that concept is? Well, I can't help but be <laughs> um, informed uh, since uh, Foxfinder premiered, what, seven years ago, we, we've all been exposed to Handmaid's Tale which is a very visual, uh, wonderful show on that. Uh, is it on Netflix? I don't know. Hulu. Yeah. Uh, so what really struck me about that series was the contrast in color. Uh, and so um, Eric and I talked a lot about that. There are things uh, 
in the world, right, um, that are very dystopian. If Eric had his way, he would have made all of the actors walk through mud because they're as if they're stuck in the mud. That was one of the ideas. And then anything that um, Judith was in, in contact in contact with we wanted to give it a little bit more vibrancy like as if um as if she's homey she's nurturing she's loving so that idea got uh um floated around during uh, design concept um meetings um and we just wanted to create an otherworldliness uh to um the concept you've talked about color and i'm wondering how color plays into that um well, this is something interesting that Eric said, because it rains, rains constantly. Eric Koger, the set designer? Yes. It rains constantly in the soundscape. It's because it's, it's England and it's raining, 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 raining. And what effect that water has on the people. So it, it has a, a way of eating away at them. And so his idea was that as if the water was coming up and eating away at their skin, as if the muscles were being exposed and all of the flesh was torn away. And so he did that with furniture. The bottoms of the furniture are all pink as if it's like raw muscles uh, to show that, you know, they're living a really difficult life. But uh, I mean, unless I explain that to you, that might not be apparent because he's used, you know, so many beautiful colors to express that. Well, I mean, that's it. This is a good time then to talk about concept versus, you know, versus um, execution, because oftentimes those quote unquote concepts aren't particularly obvious they just leave an impression and it's the impression that we're hoping for right yeah absolutely i mean uh i think ginger said it nicely uh fox is like living in a fe fever dream right and so uh things don't seem real the world is surreal it it seems horrible and uh and loving at the same time, just like dreams are, that dreams don't make sense. And so that's what Eric tried to do in his design, uh, as well as to create like that dream-like fevered dream state. So we're, we're taking over the space for those, for that week and then the four, for, uh, four performances. Um, we're, we have a pretty good reputation for world building, I think, at, at, at APF. Is this, a, is, are we going to be able to pull that off here, you think? With a space that's really not our own? Tim, you're nodding vigorously. It's going to take, it's going to be a Herculean uh, effort because the set is pretty big for us and we have to load it in in one day and tech it and we're not used to that. So um, there are some challenges. There are some challenges, but uh, we've been very organized. We have tons of production meetings. We're constantly, you know, on Zoom calls uh, in order to keep everybody informed. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for the best. It always seems to work out. <laughs> hoping for the best. How's it going to, how's it going to work out? It's a mystery. It's, it's a mystery, but it always, uh, theater's a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication and a little bit of magic. I don't know why, but it is. Uh, yes. I don't know why, but it is. It's just all these people collaborating together to make this one thing happen. And it's just like, that's a wonderful thing about it. But two, one of the things I applaud too, is like the world building that APF is famous for, I think. Um, I was certainly inspired when I did Fox Friday the first time and Emory had said something along the line of, no, we're building the world. We are making this world. Um, and I took that in uh, two other productions I did, not only with APF, but other shows that I've done for other theater companies and stuff. Um, we get to make the world. And it's like, oh, is this right? No, we make the world. Make it through our choices, whether it's, it's set, it's light, it's costuming, acting, movement. We get to make the world. Where can we buy tickets for this one? You want to? Publicfit.org. Go straight to publicfit.org. <laughs> yes. We have easy links, right? For September 23rd, 24th, 25th, and 26th. All you'd have to do is scroll down and tap on the link. And seating is limited, right? We're, we're, we're not. Uh, yes. And, it, and this is something new for us too. That there are assigned seats. There are assigned seats and we've already sold a hundred tickets. Oh, out of a total of, what do you say? 396? Yes. So, and we're three weeks from opening, which usually pe people usually wait till the last minute. So I would recommend you get your tickets now. Are people hungry for theater? Is it, is it, is this a good idea? Are people hungry to get back into the, into audiences? Yes. Because Hadestown just reopened and Waitress just reopened on Broadway. Right. And uh, to go back to something you said at the beginning, um, there are new positions 
in Broadway productions right now, and it's a COVID manager yeah. with different theater companies to make sure that all those COVID protocols are being observed. Or you're just going to give Brandy Blackman a new title. I, you know what? I think she needs it because she is capable of balancing no, that and all the other titles she Brandy has. Any more work? That's true. She is. She is well overworked. That is absolutely true. All right, Ginger, you are now our COVID, uh, our COVID specialist. Yeah, great. Uh, <laughs> no, I just have to say that if I was an audience member, I would actually consider going to this production. I. Uh, I would be comfortable because the way that the tables and chairs are set up as opposed to a, a, th a traditional theater seating where you're right next to other people that you don't know. And I think it's a good introduction back into going into places with audiences for people who are a little nervous about doing it. We're going to ease our way in with a with a compelling story, a mystery, a dystopian dark comedy and uh Roll the dice. And there's only four cast members. Four cast members, four performances. If someone is, you know, nervous about going out, that's also a selling point. There's only four of us. You're really far away. We're really far away. <laughs> we stay on the peninsula. We stay, we stay on our own, our own peninsula. I think it's more of a jetty than a peninsula, but that's just me. It's like Italy. Maybe an isthmus. See what you started. Sorry. Look, nobody loves, a, nobody loves a good isthmus as much as I do. I love it. Madison, Wisconsin, one of my favorite isthmuses of all time. A fine, fine isthmus, but we just don't have one here, I'm sorry to say. All right. Well, I, I think that's it. I think we have, we've wrung out all of the isthmus talk on Fox Finder that we can. Ginger and Timothy, thank you for, for joining us. That's it for this episode of Behind the Buzz. We're... We keep calling this a continuing conversation, and we will, a continuing conversation uh, here with us at a public fit theater company. This was season two, episode one. Again, I want to thank Ginger Lanier and Timothy Cummings for joining us today. I, I thought this was a fun conversation. Okay. <laughs> no response, but I, this was a fun conversation. Look, if you enjoy these conversations, please take a moment to subscribe. Uh, as we said before, we'll, we'll be exploring our entire upcoming theatrical season this year, and it, 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 it's a doozy. I mean, alongside Foxfinder, we'll be talking about stage readings of Gloria by Brendan Jacob Jenkins. Uh, we're going to do Skeleton Crew by Dominique Marceau, Stop Kiss by Diana Sun, and Heroes of the Fourth Turning by Will Arbery. And then we'll, we'll be talking about our fully staged productions as well. Uh, Craig Wright's recent tragic events, and Things I Know to Be True by Andrew Bovell. We plan to be talking with performers and directors, designers, and hopefully even a special surprise guest or two. Uh, you can tell us what you think by rating this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify or Audible or Stitcher or wherever you download these, these conversations. Your feedback allows other listeners across the inner tubes to discover these chats and, and join the APF conversation or you can contact us directly through email at behind the buzz two z's at a public fit dot o-r-g behind the buzz is a product of a public fit theater company in association with giant leap industries adam paul director slash empresario of Giant Leap Industries.